0: All right, gentlemen. What do you think each of your last words will be?
1: Uh, so if I had to take a shot in the dark at what is gonna be passing through Mike's lips one last time, um, it's gonna be kind of a in and out sort of situation because as he's chowing down on the newest McDonald's uh, PR stunt, uh, he's gonna be ranting and raving to his still, uh, still sticking with him and torturedly exasperated girlfriend as he's ranting and raving and saying. Do you know what those goddamn hip kids on Twitter were saying about Disney movie that's objectively horrible, but I actually have to like because they don't like it? And then his heart just explodes because he's eating an expired fucking like uh, Bella Thorne porn burger from McDonald's or some shit.
2: <laughs> All right, now if I had to guess what Tom's last words would be, and this is our uh, season finale or our final episode of the first season, so. Uh Kyle can attest we've been doing this long enough that I think I have a pretty good sense of what Tom's last words will be. Uh based on how our show operations work and and that is that I believe uh, a doctor will come to him and go uh, Mr. Lorenzo, uh the surgery didn't take. Uh we have to do it a second time and Tom will go, "Nah, I don't think so. The first time's good enough. We don't need to do it again. That's fine. That's fine. We can all go on. We don't need to do it again." And then he's out. That's how I anticipate
1: it going. And then my heart explodes. <laughs>
0: Kane helped to change the world, but Kane's world now is history. And we'll talk about that history and more here on You're Missing Out. We're talking 1941 Citizen Kane with special guest Matt Singer.
2: Our guest today is uh, editor and critic of ScreenCrush.com. Matt Singer joins us today to talk about Citizen Kane. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me. One of my favorite, really my favorite movie of all time. So it's I haven't I don't think I've ever talked about it on a podcast though, so Really? Yeah, I don't think well, so. Great. Well,
2: this came about um we when we were planning the season, um, we knew two things. One, we were keeping Citizen Kane for the last episode of the season. Uh, and we knew we got to get the perfect guest for this. You know, we we, we put it off. There were a lot of people who maybe we sent the list to and we just didn't have it on there to make sure. We were like, we got to have the perfect guest this, We got to have somebody, you know, ready for this. It just so happened that it was, I think, you had written this great piece, which I was mentioning to you off mic, which uh, the title was, hey, you know what movie is not overrated? Citizen Kane. And the, I think the day you wrote that piece, I immediately sent it to uh, Tom and our producer, Kyle. I was like, this is this is exactly what we talk about on the show all the time. This idea of kind of pushing back against the this overrated narrative of classics. So I reached out to you and you very graciously agreed to do the show, despite the fact that uh, we, you and I barely know one another. I think we have, uh, you know, the mo- most of our exchanges have been uh, back at my old job, which were, uh, oh, are these the tickets? Are these my seats? Cool. <laughs> thank you. You know, so I'm very glad you took a shot on, on us with this. I really appreciate it.
3: No, that's great. I'm just going to I'm just going to read that piece and then I'm just going to go. Is that? Oh, that's
2: that's totally fine. That's I totally get it. um...
3: Here we go. Yep. (laughs) Well,
2: I mean, you know, the last time I saw you, you were um, hosting a cat's rowdy screening. So if you want to throw in some references to Rum Tum Tugger, too, just to balance it out.
3: (sighs) Well, I mean, if you can't talk about the, you know, cats, the second best movie ever made, then at least you might as well talk about Citizen Kane, which is the only film that's More resonant than it. Well,
1: well, there is a direct line from Citizen Kane to Cats. I mean, you you don't you don't need to be the editor and critic of Screen Crush to see that. (laughs) Absolutely obvious. I mean, well, uh... I mean,
2: look, we may not talk about Cats, but we may talk about the Cats Meow, the Peter Bogdanovich film. Does anybody remember that? No, just me. I just
3: I, I saw it, but. Yeah, I haven't seen it in many years, so I don't remember it too well. But you're right; that is a very tenuous connection to Citizen Kane.
2: <laughs> we're already, we're already. That's that's the one that everybody was expecting to hear about. There's no other movie related to Citizen Kane that would be relevant right now, right? There's not. Nothing came out this year pertaining to it, right? We don't need to address it. Not, not in 2021, uh, anyway. That's exactly. Um, see? There we go. <laughs>
1: oh, and it's not like we've been living through any uh, sort of historical. uh, uh, events or anything that would remind us of uh, Citizen Kane. Hey. Citizen Kane hasn't aged well at all, and yet no. we must talk about <laughs> it. <laughs>
2: um, so, Matt, and in addition to um, your work, at Screen Quest, you also uh, had a great uh, Spider-Man book recently. I just want to make sure we shout that out too.
3: Oh yeah, thank you. Yes, uh, it's um, I think uh, it's, it's Spider-Man from Amazing to Spectacular, the name of the book. It's like a history of Spider-Man comics. It's not about the movies. Um, I, I, it's it's specifically about, uh, Spider-Man comics, the history of Spider-Man comics with, uh, lots of beautiful Marvel comics artwork in there. It's like a big oversized coffee table book. Yes. It's, it's, it's the best book that I've ever written. The only book so far that I've ever written, but easily the best.
2: And it's great because our producer, Kyle is a huge obsessive Spider-Man fan. Uh, but he doesn't get to be on mic for this segment. So he can't talk to you about it at all, which is so much fun for us. He's just chomping at the bit, and he's muted. It's wonderful. Um,
1: he, was a, he was just a big little boy <laughs> sitting, in, sitting, watching Infinity War, dressed up as Spider-Man, and then oh took maker to the heart. When Spider Man disappeared,
2: that was the greatest moment. Sitting next to him, watching his face as it happened, it was uh, it was such a joy.
1: Again, as he was dressed as Spider Man,
2: <laughs> but I'm so I'm so excited to have you here, and I'm so glad that we have you on for this. So, what we're gonna do is I'm going to start, as always, by reading the National Film Registry statement on Citizen Kane, and then we will uh, talk about the film. So, this is why the registry. Uh, selected Citizen Kane in its inaugural year. Directed by and starring Orson Welles, this film tells the life story of Charles Foster Kane, Wells, a newspaper tycoon who gains immense wealth at the expense of the ones he loves. The screenplay, written by Herman Mankiewicz and Welles, was inspired by the biography of real-life newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, and the film's celebrated visual style, featuring stunning black-and-white cinematography, was created by director of photography Greg Toland. Although Citizen Kane received a lukewarm reception from audiences upon its initial release, it was applauded by critics and is today often considered the greatest film of all time. The film, which also co-stars Joseph Cotton, Dorothy Gore, Everett Sloan, Ruth Warwick, was recognized by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences with an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. So that's why the registry picked it. Now I want to start, uh, Matt, you said this was your... Uh, favorite film. When was the first time you saw it?
3: So I don't know exactly the year, but it was probably, uh, I want to say middle school or, or maybe a freshman uh, in high school, somewhere around there. It was like one of the earliest older movies that I ever watched. I was sort of getting slightly interested in, in, um, in movies beyond just, Oh, whatever was going, you know, whatever was on in the movie theater when we used to have those things and, uh, (laughs) you know, whatever was on HBO or whatever. And I don't really know how I ended up renting it. Maybe my dad recommended it or, you know, something like that. That's probably what it is, is that I asked, I was getting interested in older movies and my dad said, well, the movie you have to see is Citizen Kane. That would be my guess. Um, And I rented it probably from Blockbuster or uh, Easy Video, which was the big video store in my hometown um, back when we had those things. And uh, I watched it on my, tiny television in my parents uh uh, tv room uh on a tiny television and just was immediately like even as like a little kid I was like whoa this movie is amazing and um as dorky as that is to say like I just immediately was I just loved it and I I am like I there's I mean there's a lot of very nerdy things about me but one of the nerdiest would have to be that like you know in my childhood bedroom, I didn't have like a poster of Terminator Two, although I loved that movie, or like Cindy Crawford or something. I had a I had the Citizen Kane poster in my in my bedroom in like high school. It's still there. In fact, in my parents' house, they still have it hanging up. <laughs> so, um, I've even at that early age, I sort of loved it, and it was always like uh, from that point on, pretty much my answer to like what when people would say like, well, what's your your favorite movie which you know when you do this kind of stuff like people ask that's like the first thing they ask you um and i always and it, people would look at me like i was saying it to be a snob or to you know like oh that's what i'm supposed to say or something like that but it's it's true and it, it's weird um but every time i i watch it um i my opinion does not change uh, certainly if anything I, I appreciate it even more now so uh yeah it's I, that that would be if i saw it when i was in middle school it would be i mean it's not quite 30 years but it's 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 starting to approach the 30 year mark since the first time i saw it which is a horrifying thing to say out <laughs> loud but it's true
2: i want to say and i i think tom knows what's coming and maybe our listeners know what's coming it uh it struck me when you said that your dad probably recommended it to you because uh C- citizen kane is is uh and i've told the story before and my father hates when i tell it uh, is is my uh, is my cinephile origin story, and I, I go back to this a lot. Uh, I was, you know, I watched movies as a kid, and I vividly remember. And this is my, you know, what made me obsessive. I vividly remember I was uh, like eight years old, and I was uh, the Animaniacs uh, had a, had a segment about going to the video store and singing a song about it, and they had a line in the song called "There was a sled named Rosebud and a citizen named Kane," and I remember like I was in a Walmart with my dad and I was eight and I said, Dad, w- what's Rosebud in Citizen Kane? And he turned to me as though speaking to a full grown adult and went, you've never seen Citizen Kane? <laughs> and the shame I felt in that moment and only as I got older did I realize, no, I'm eight. You would know I can't operate the VCR like you. You would know what I'm watching.
1: So uh, Mike is the kind of guy who gets, who has to pathologically, obsessively watch the entirety <laughs> of anything. Like, he went to Disney two years ago. And to he's the like, studio, okay, gonna...
2: to be clear, not the park. Okay.
1: Okay. right. Either, either way, he went to Disney Studios and he said, I'm going to watch everything Disney ever made. Cartoons, shorts, uh, sing-alongs released on videotape. He watched everything. <laughs> so in 2019, for like six months, he was like, I haven't seen anything released in 2019. His father saying, "Have you never seen Citizen Kane?" is his rosebud for why he <laughs> is such a psychotic film watcher.
2: It's true. Like I, I went the like the next week. I went to Hollywood Video and I got their video about the American Film Institute, uh, one hundred movies list, just to like learn what those were and then watch them. Weirdly, in the AFI hundred movies countdown, uh, Donald Trump does appear. But in that, he's not talking about Citizen Kane. He's talking about King Kong and how watching King Kong as a kid made him want to build tall buildings. Oh wow! We, we'll, you know, we'll get into that and the parallels, and of course his, uh, you know, his his thoughts on the movie. And you had a, you know, Matt, you had a great quote about uh, he loves Kane on his own terms, right. uh, the only terms anybody ever knows. Um, but before we get to that, Tom, what was your first time seeing Citizen Kane?
1: uh honestly probably not too dissimilar from matt's it was probably maybe a little later like this uh, junior senior high school when i started really getting into movies for real like i was always kind of the movie kid but this is when i started getting for real i got the netflix uh dvd uh sent you know get those sent to my house and uh you know says the cane was always one of those movies you heard about watching you know what whenever those like uh amc like uh shows about the top 100 this top 100 that and citizen kane and i re- and I-, I rented it one day and uh, i was kind of fearing it was going to be like homework because that's kind of the reputation it got and it's kind of why people look at you like really citizen kane's your favorite movie but like i was like a snobby like a doofy 17 year old kid who was like into metallica and i was like this movie rules this is a great movie what are people talking about because nobody ever talks about when they talk about this movie is how funny it is. It's a funny movie.
2: Yeah. I, I think there's also a thing. Matt, where did you, what did you, uh, when you went to college, what did you study?
3: In college, I had, a, a, my degree was in this thing called TV radio film. So, okay. Um, I mean, mostly film. Uh, there was some TV. There was no radio at all, even though <laughs> that was included in there. Um, so it was mostly film, but it was more like the production side yeah. of things. Uh, it was a, a fairly uh, useless like, degree in like how to make things. And then I did go to grad school for film studies uh, after that.
2: So we we both, that's how Tom and I met, we met in film school. And I do feel like the thing with Citizen Kane when you're in film school is um, in film, if you go to film school and, and a lot of people went to film school and studied film because of Citizen Kane, you know, Francois Truffaut said that it was the... The film that launched the most filmmaking careers, but I do feel like film school approaches Citizen Kane the way that, um like, a dad who catches you smoking one cigarette and makes you smoke the whole pack does, where it's just, like, the 39 steps in Citizen Kane get shown to you so many times in film school and broken down so much that you, you at a point, have to sort of fight against the the desire to kind of go ah it's actually it's it's overhyped actually that movie sucks I don't know if that was your experience but at least for us like that was a movie that got played so much and you heard about so much that you almost felt like you almost felt spoiled by it you know was that your experience at all or was that not no I
3: don't think you know I'm trying to think if I ever was forced to watch it in a in a class and I don't know I don't think so I mean I did take a, a class on it was like a two-part two seminar class in grad school about the history of American cinema, and I guess it's possible that I did watch it again in there. If it, if I did, I just I don't really have a strong memory of it, but maybe that's just because I had already seen it so many times by then. I don't know. It didn't. I don't remember. I don't remember it coming up a lot. I know that a lot of my colleagues and friends in grad school took us took a a seminar on Orson Welles, so I'm sure that <laughs> that they watched it a bunch there or talked about it along with all of his other stuff but I, I i didn't take that that seminar so you no, don't I think don't,
2: that seminar mostly covered unicron the destroyer of worlds
3: i mean i'm sure it came up i mean <laughs> how can you overlook that but uh i, I you know I, I have a feeling they probably spent uh slightly more time on on citizen kane
2: <laughs> it's such an interesting i mean that's that's kind of the thing with 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 kane i i and i i'm curious because you mentioned we all kind of came to it around the same age uh, one thing with kane that I think is what makes it last as long as it has uh, and why it has a reputation it has is that I think, and I'm, I'm you know, curious how you guys feel because we all came to it on the same age, is that when you're a kid, you can still recognize the immediate uh, kind of moral of the film and the idea of, Oh, right. He had everything, but then, you know, what, what does he want in the end? The sled representing his, you know, his childhood, his innocence. But I find that as I get older, each time I've watched it at a different stage of my life, there's a new element of it that suddenly unlocks for you.
3: Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, I, the thing that really strikes me now that didn't strike me as a 12 year old or whatever, is that that Orson Welles made this movie when he was 25. Yeah. And when you're a 12 year old, that just like, Oh, that's an old person. And now that I'm 40 and I, I, I hear that a 25 year old made this movie. It infuriates me quite frankly, <laughs> that someone so young, could make something so brilliant, you know, and uh, um, that that what an achievement that is not just, um, you know, visually and, and a screenplay, but just like I was I was watching it again last night. And, you know, the scene at the end of the movie where he destroys Susan's room, you know, he she yeah. leaves him and he, in, a, in a fury, he destroys this room. And some people, you know, um, one of the things that I, you know, I don't know if I mentioned it in the article that I wrote that you referenced, but one one common thing that I often hear from people who don't love Citizen Kane is that the makeup is cheesy, the makeup isn't convincing, you know, when they get older, they don't look like they're really older. And I mean, to some extent, that's true. But I was watching that scene last night and thinking, even if you don't buy the makeup that Wells is wearing in that scene, his physicality in that scene is incredible. The way that he communicates this old man, the way he moves and haunches and stumbles and swings his arms. Like he physically embodies this old figure. And I was just thinking like that again, like how did he do that at 25? Like I could do it now because I feel old every minute (laughs) of every day. But when I was 25, I didn't. And it's like, I'm just, you know, like that's, that's truly some incredible acting. And, you know, as much as Wells gets credit for the look of the movie and the design and some of the screenplay, obviously with Mankiewicz, like, I don't, I don't know that I've read a ton about his performance in the movie. And I know that's something that as I get older, I'm really impressed by that a 25 year old could make this and also so convincingly play this guy at so many different points in his life where even if I don't buy the makeup, the you know visually the makeup isn't a hundred percent convincing. His acting is so convincing in every scene, um, and that's something I certainly didn't appreciate when I was uh, you know a teenager or thirteen when I was watching it for the first time.
2: Uh, yeah, I think there's also something when you bring up the makeup. Part of the thing that I have have uh, come to love with this this movie, and and also becomes one of the great not this is a unique thought, but one of the great tragedies is that um, when we were prepping for this show, I not only re-watched this, but of course uh, some of Wells' other films, and I rewatched The Magnificent Ambersons. And you can't help but think, were it not for uh, the the battles with uh, with Hearst and the controversy around this and all that, had he been allowed to continue to do what he was doing, had, had Ambersons been under his control too, and, and he continued to make these films with the Mercury players, you just think about, You know, as opposed to what Citizen Kane is now, where people are mining certain shots or certain looks or certain techniques, I do kind of feel like, you know, you mentioned the makeup, and I I think that it wasn't going for necessarily, you know, realism the same way that the film uses all these different visual techniques that you wouldn't call realistic. There's certainly nothing near realist about this, but rather that there is a theatricality to it, that there is this, you know, Wells came from the theater, and he brings that with him, and it's kind of like... You're you're not supposed to necessarily look at particularly old man Joseph Cotton and go, yeah, that looks right, but rather just get past it and kind of get onto the wavelength of it, vibe with it, and, uh, you know, uh, kind of add some of the suspension of disbelief that one brings to theater and and bring that to the screen as well. I think that's such a... It's it's just asking something a little different from the audience than they might have been used to at that particular point in time. Not always the case. We just talked about Sunrise: A Song of Two Humans, the the Murnau film, which is another film that's not trying to be uh, literal or realistic in any way, um, but just to evoke an emotion. And that's, I think, where this you know part of the thing with this film beyond the technical elements of it is it just manages to to hit. Just the right wavelength with each, um, you know, for the audience, with each kind of mood it's trying to evoke, you know?
1: It's it's funny, too, because I, I saw that he even talked about how the makeup in the movie kind of haunted him for the rest of his life because he said it made him look better than he ever looked. And people kept seeing <laughs> him in person and being like, why don't you look as good as you did in Citizen Kane? And he went, because it was a movie. They had to do all kinds of crazy shit to make me look better. But... um. I, I, you know, and I think all of that theatrical staging lighting that the makeup doesn't necessarily look 100% real or whatever, but like he's not Dustin Hoffman and Little Man Tato or whatever. <laughs> I think it works because he's smartly like the structure of the story, you know, is people telling us stories about him. So it's it's already got an like an additional layer of anti-reality to it because, I mean, we even see, like Matt mentioned, the the room destruction scene. We see it from a slightly different angle, like five minutes later when the butler is like, yeah, I was there when he destroyed the room, and I know what Rosebud is, even though he really doesn't. But, um, yeah, I, I think he just smartly realizes that this is kind of a mythic retelling of a mythic figure, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the most naturalistic thing in the world.
2: Yeah, I, I think it I think it's allowed to forego you know, I there's there's so much we deal with this film and we we talked about this again with the Sunrise and some other films where you know, I feel like sometimes now when we talk about movies we're we're very big on realism and, and, and believability and I think that Wells kind of approached this a different way and you know, as he would with the rest of his career as well, and kind of it's the idea of as long as it strikes the tone and as long as it moves the audience, that's what matters, you know, rather than necessarily somebody going, Oh, I totally buy this particular thing as entirely realistic.
1: Well, he, I'm just saying, he comes from the stage. So he, he has a different view of like, well, this is inherently unreal and people have to buy into this. So like, he could take that, a lot of the lessons he learned from the stage and bring it to the screen and uh you know take the lessons he was learning from the collaborators around him um i'm blanking on the uh greg tolan he said like yeah you put me you put greg tolan in front of you for four hours and you'll learn everything you need to know about cinematography and he just said all right i'm a stage guy greg tolan's a legendary cinematographer i'm gonna merge these two ideas and meld them perfectly right in the middle
2: and I, I think, uh, by the way, do you know, uh, did you, I don't know if you know, Greg Tolan is in the film for a few, couple minutes. Greg yeah, Tolan has a cameo he? in the film. He's, do you remember when Kane, it's part of the newsreel, when Kane is getting off, the old man Kane is getting off the boat saying there's not going to be a war in Europe? Right. That's the, the reporter that he's speaking to there. I know it's one of the reporters, gets but I believe that's the reporter, is is Greg Tolan, appearing as one of the reporters interviewing Kane.
3: Be cloud, um, young man. When I was a reporter, we'd uh, asked him faster yeah. than that. <laughs> yes. That's
2: that's the the thing about this movie too uh, that I I realized on this rewatch that I guess I never appreciated before is you know I, I think when I remember Citizen Kane especially because the message of the film is is how alone he ultimately is you think of him as a miserable son of a bitch and I kind of forgot just how charming he is uh, not just in the beginning parts of young handsome Orson Welles but even just like later old man. Kane getting off the boat saying no one here. He's he's charming. You know, you can see why people are won over by him. Absolutely. Yeah, which is another element of that, that Wells performance you were talking about.
3: Well, he was he was twenty five years old. I mean, he when he you know, when he they reveal him in that the for the first time, uh, you know, like in the office of the inquirer and in I think it's in the 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 Thatcher sequence. Yeah. Where he's, you know, kind of just sitting there and I mean, he's just so charming and handsome and, you know, talking about all the, you know, all the places he was kicked out of. And, uh, you know, I, do you have any information that we can use to expose this whatever, you know, I forget exactly the utility or whatever it is, which Thatcher is a part of. And he's you know, asking him if he has any information and, you know, and he's uh, rambling and smiling. Yeah, he's he's uh, it's a good performance, I, even though. Again, I don't think it's a, a performance that gets a lot of attention. Certainly, it's overshadowed in a lot of ways by all the incredible, uh, you know, the visual dynamic things that they're doing behind the camera. But I think he does a great job in front of the camera, too.
2: No, I agree. And I, I think that I, I wonder if part of that, too, is just the fact that because he is such a I mean, you it's one of those cases where because he is the director and the writer and is so much a part of the story of the behind the scenes of this film as well. You can't separate Wells from Kane there. It's impossible. It's, it's, you know, you, you can't talk about one without the other so much. I wonder if it's just a case in some, in some situations of people, <laughs> Uh, choosing to emphasize one element and focus on one as opposed to the others, almost like, like, and we'll talk about it later, but like how the Oscars kind of just went, all right, we'll give you the screenwriting and we're not going to talk about the other stuff. I wonder if it's a case of people kind of choosing to focus on the narrative of Wells as the creative force behind it to the detriment of recognizing him as the performer in it. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I think that, and I, let's let's talk up front. Uh, one of the things that I, I never get over with the movie is just the brilliance of that opening newsreel and how it gives you all the information you're going to need for the rest of this movie right off the bat.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, it's, uh, it's, it wouldn't fly in the era of uh, people afraid of spoilers, that's for sure, because it spoils <laughs> the entire, you know, it's like one giant spoiler and it lays out, it tells you everything that's going to happen in this movie or technically already has happened. I mean, that another thing that's sort of wonderful about the movie is that um, so much of it is told in these flashbacks that have and we're seeing all these things that have already happened. And as someone previously noted, um, like that, it's, you know, it's all from different people's perspectives and it doesn't play too much with, you know, um, you know, it's not Rashomon. It's not like we see the same event from different perspectives that or that they differ so strongly but you do you are experiencing things through the memories of certain people you know whether it's you know everett sloan's character joseph cotton's character it's all you know we don't the only word we hear the real actual Kane say in the movie is rosebud everything else is you know people's recollections of him people's opinions of him um, the first section, you know, the Thatcher section is like a, a written, like a memoir, I guess, an unpublished memoir, but basically the same thing. It's almost like an interview. So, yeah, the only thing that we see of Kane that's in the contemporary present, the only thing he actually says is this is his one final word, which somehow everyone knows and people hear and it's famous, even though like in the movie, it doesn't seem like there's anyone else in the room when he says it. It's That's one of those enduring mysteries of the movie which i guess if you wanted to nitpick you could but it's just it's one of those strange there's there's a lot of strange things in that first scene like you could almost just we could you could do a whole podcast about just the the you know the first 5 minutes of, of citizen kane and the you know the way it's shot and the use of like the snow globe and there's snow outside the snow globe as you know in the close up of like his lips and stuff it looks like he's inside the snow globe And uh, yeah, he says in Rosebud and all that. So, um, and then then the the, the News on the March sequence itself, yeah, totally just gives away the entire movie. But I guess that's important as well, because in a sense he's giving you this blueprint for what he's going to, you know, he's essentially giving himself permission to not tell a linear story, to not worry too much about, um, you know, the typical, even then, the typical biopic um, tropes, you know, because, you know, biopics were quite popular back then. They were winning Oscars in the 30s. So he's, he's almost giving himself the permission and letting the audience not worry too much about, here's what's going to happen, because he just lays it all out. So then you can focus more on the fascinating, use of camera and sound and black and white and the performances and the music and the emotional elements of the story and the comedy and all it's like, you, 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 you've gotten it all laid out. And, um, you know, I joked when I started rambling here about that, it's like a, you know, wouldn't fly in the age of spoilers, but in a sense, it's like, it's a thumb in the eye at that whole notion that the plot is what matters. I mean, here it's, he's, 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 throwing the plot away and then focusing on all these other things that are in- of interest to him, which is pretty much everything except the plot really.
2: And it's the, I mean, he's also doing this is a much different film, but it's also like what James Cameron does in, in Titanic. You know, he starts Titanic with the, with the characters basically explaining, here's how the ship went down. Here's all the technical elements of this. Here's right. so that when it actually happens and when you're watching it happen on screen, you're able to sort of navigate the chaos so that if you find yourself wondering, well, how did Kane go from married to the first woman to now he's with this opera singer and, you know, which another movie would probably feel compelled to spend uh, 10 minutes on the, you know, the, on the death of the wife and the son. And in this movie kind of just dismisses that in a newsreel line. Right. You know, you just have that mention of, uh, and then later they died in a car crash and, and you know, which I think if you're watching this for the first time and don't know, you probably look at that line. If you're trying to figure out what Rosebud is, you hear that line and go, well, it must be connected to that. And no, nope, completely. Incontru- I want to say one thing, too, about what you mentioned about the snow globe, Matt, which is um, I found interesting, you know, I've uh, in prep for the show. I try and watch all the movies that are nominated from all the years and all that because I'm, I'm just a broken person with nothing else going on. And one thing I found very interesting is have you ever seen the film Kitty Foil? No. Nope. It's the film for which Ginger Rogers won her Oscar. It's an RKO film from 1940, so it precedes Kane. And what I found amazing about this is that Kitty Foyle uses uh, a motif with a snow globe, wherein Kitty Foyle's father has this snow globe, and when he, uh, I believe, dies, or he has a shock... He drops the snow globe and it hits the floor. It doesn't break, but it hits the floor in an identical way to Kane. And I was just so struck by this because you kinda of don't think about you always think about the movies that drew from Kane. You kinda of don't think of the fact that this would have taken elements from that. And I couldn't help but think, was that where that came from? You know? Did that did this most iconic broken snow globe in the film you talked about, you do five minutes, you know, a whole podcast on the first five minutes. And then I was so struck by the fact that oh, that might be where it came from. That might be the the sort of genesis point where you know Mankiewicz or, or Wells looked at that and went, okay, what about what about this as the launching point for the film?
1: Well, you know, it's 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 funny, like you know Matt saying that the fi- or the newsreel stuff is basically uh, one long spoiler. Um, the movie starts basically telling you what rosebud is with all of that snow globe imagery yeah he's still living in his little cottage which is now represented in the snow globe that you're not going to realize until the very end and you're going to go oh he told us at the beginning that he's been living in this snow globe for his entire life and you go man this guy good filmmaker uh <laughs> also rewatching it uh, the other day for this uh, really took me by surprise how like the first thing we see him in the newsreel footage is him just hanging out with Hitler.
2: Yeah. That's a great, that the, the, you know, endorsed, renounced, sometimes endorsed, then renounced moment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very, uh, very, very telling moment, especially for uh, 1941. Yeah. Uh, right. 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 Uh, right before Pearl Harbor. Right. Yeah. So uh seems like uh Orson was uh, on the ball with uh, using Hitler as a sign of uh, not good things. Let's talk
2: a little bit, uh, if we can move a little ahead, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, you know, the the scene, the, the scene where we, whether we know it or not, see Rosebud, you know, Kane being given away. I, I find that so interesting because it should be addressed. Uh, many people like to say that this movie is the story of uh, William Randolph Hearst. That's not entirely true. It's It is a composite character. Uh, you know elements come from Hearst but they also come from Joseph Pulitzer Uh, and Harold McCormick is the guy who in real life did build an opera house just to appease his mistress Uh, but of course that would um, you know all of that would be attributed to Hearst especially because Hearst got so incensed about how he thought he was depicted that it kind of feels like though it was a composite character once Hearst started uh, you know accidentally drumming up publicity for the film Wells played right into it but Hearst was a child of privilege. You know, he, he did not have uh, this impoverished, get lucky backstory. But I think that that's such a, it's such a fascinating scene in the film. The idea that, you know, call it Dickensian, call it what you want, the fact that some rich benefactor is essentially just going to take Charles away from his home. And it's barely talked about in within the film. There's not like some long explanation as to why this is happening
1: yeah there's no why none of no scenes with the wives like if only why don't you connect with your parents again oh it was so horrible what happened to you they took you from your parents it's just uh it's there and then uh, it's gone and you have to just remember that it happened and it's fueling his every uh waking decision
3: yeah it's interesting you know watching it last night i was thinking about that scene and and um the fact that the you know we never see his parents again Yeah. and i don't think there's much of an explanation like, um, like what happened to the parent? Like, it's not like they, uh, died. It's not like, uh, he was orphaned. They, it's, he's just treated like one. But, um, to your point about, you know, who, who, well, uh, excuse me, who Kane was sort of modeled after. And obviously there's the enormous influence of Hearst, but then there's these other figures and Hearst's background doesn't really jive with Kane's. Like, the person whose background kind of jives with Kane is Orson Welles, who actually was kind of an orphan, like his yeah. parents separated, his mother yeah. died when he was very young. Um, and he was like a child prodigy and, you know, tr- traveled and went all, to all these different places, you know, even even uh, making this movie as at, at 25 years old, almost makes him a child prodigy in, in a certain sense. So, you know, there is a little bit of autobiography in this movie as, as well. So, that might be another interesting element to consider in that scene where the parents basically give him over to a it's a very when you think about it it's like a very strange situation like parents basically like give their child to a bank yeah. like i didn't i didn't know you could do that like here you take care of him and and let him travel the world and and become educated And we're gonna stay here in this tiny shack in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Like, why don't they go along? I I I've never quite under I don't I don't quite understand all of that.
1: Yeah, it's like they hit what, like oil or something, or they find it's
3: gold. It's a a gold mine. Yeah, Yeah. 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 gold and,
1: but it's not them.
3: They don't
2: even find the gold. It's a it's a border.
3: Right, someone gives them gives them a deed, a, a seemingly yeah. worthless deed and they st- and it turns out that it has this incredibly rich gold mine on that property. And so they that's how they become rich, by accident.
1: Yeah, and but it's it's funny too cuz then it's just like, well, we got this deed, we got all this money, but we're going to stay here with our little uh, bed uh, bed and breakfast in the middle of the uh, Arctic tundra and Yeah. Um, You go off and do other things because it's better than being raised here. Where you go, well, then leave.
3: (laughs) Right? Yeah. It's it's, it is it is if you it doesn't if you really think about it, I don't think it it entirely holds up. But now, I I will say I I don't think again. It's it's one of those elements of the plot. You're not really you don't really need to worry about that too much.
2: I will say I had a professor in college who one time, and that was this is uh, almost uh, ten years ago now. Uh, but once they floated, I never really thought about the scene too much. I kind of just went, okay, this is what you got to do to get from point A to point B. It's fine. But they floated a theory revolving around that scene that has stuck with me ever since, and now I can't watch it any other way. They're Uh, all aliens. (laughs) Well, he, he said that, you know, he had stated that he never had an explanation for it, and then that one time he had a student that posed this theory... And it stuck with him, and now it's stuck with me, which is if you watch that scene and you consider the idea that Fred Graves, the uh, the guy who just happens to give them the deed, is Charlie's father. And I don't mean this in some kind of complicated, like, oh, but what if really? But that when you consider the way that both of his parents are behaving, the fact that his father is, you know, that the, the Kane is is so kind of downtrodden and just full of rage but he also seemingly has no say in this that he's uh, the mother's the one signing him away and coldly and and dejectedly uh and the father you know when she has that line where she says to him something like you know this will get him far away from you oh uh it'll be you know uh where you can't get him and she's she is completely dead to the world Uh, And emotionless. And the father is so incensed, but seemingly powerless. And once you consider it that way, that that Charles is essentially uh, his origin is a bastard of a of a, you know, a a woman who uh, who who cheated on her husband. Uh, which when you think about that time period, late 1800s, you were, you know, you sent the child away. If they were a a bastard, you would send the kid away. And in this case, you know, the fact that the potential real father would have left this wealth behind, the custodianship makes a lot more sense. The fact that both parents are sort of uncomfortable with how to even treat this child, because that's the thing. The parents are both very strange to their kid. You know, the father doesn't know how to act to the child the mother is very distant. The way they're both treating Charles is very strange for what you would consider, you know, even if it was parents signing their kid away for a better life, they're both treating Charles different than you would have characters behave. And I can't imagine somebody like Wells who is making this film, and a film that is otherwise entirely emotionally intuitive, it's hard to believe that he wouldn't have factored that in when he was telling these actors how to how to treat him.
3: Yeah, uh, you know, that's I guess that's possible. The other thing, as you're talking, I'm thinking more about it. And the other other possibility or another possibility, and we've kind of talked about it already, is that, you know, the idea that none of these events are unfolding objectively. They're all coming from a perspective. And here it's the perspective of Thatcher. And, you know, this is what he wrote in his memoirs. But that doesn't mean that that's actually what happened. And it's very possible that maybe he coerced the parents into uh doing it you know that in in what in in the actual events he told them well you can't take care of him i can take care of him much better and they went along with it for some reason or he you know you could you could come up with some reason i suppose um and when he wrote it he made the parents seem more like the bad guys and him seem more like a decent fellow who's just uh, looking out for this this boy. So uh that's another possibility too. But it doesn't really matter.
2: No, it's just it's another case of with this film and what makes it endure so much is that it there's not a lot in the film that you can just write off as oh this is bad or just go there are all these little because it's so well thought out, because Wells has so many little things, but there's so much to, to dig into with each scene. There's yeah, I'm sorry, did Tom, did you have any thoughts on the uh I didn't wanna I didn't wanna steamroll over you there.
1: No, I mean I think that's all that's very, you know, fair. I think it I think it is about, you know, the subjective that we're seeing it from different angles and you know, like you said, we're not doing Rashomon style stuff here, but it does lend to the movie's more like that there's scenes not too many scenes like this, but overall just like you need to focus on the emotions of the scene and not so much the logistical breakdown of every little detail. It's just more that Uh, Charles is getting abandoned by his family and he's going to be taken in by this banker and he's going to hold grudges about this and he's going to kind of be a real pain in the ass for this banker the rest of his life. And the banker is going to see himself as just this poor put upon man who tried to help this boy, not thinking uh, I stole a kid from his parents, essentially, and just shipped them off to schools and didn't treat them like a child. And, uh, you know, you get from this one one scene why uh you know charles is such a maniacal abusive kind of guy uh who has to abuse and manipulate the women in his life because well he looks at his mother and says well this woman cold-heartedly just threw me away so i'm not gonna let a woman decide my life anymore and uh again everything you need is in like the the first 10 minutes of this movie and then all of it's just luxuriating in the details and the character work of just the tragedy <laughs> of of just it sucks being a kid. <laughs> I don't know, you know. It's just it's every time you watch this movie, you, you just you just pick up on something new, man. Uh, and there's also,
2: I think, something too when I think about Kane's origin and it's you know and other things too. You know, in terms of what Mankowitz and, and and Wells were coming from, I do think it's interesting that especially in the uh, first half of the. The 20th century, it, there's a couple of these pieces that serve as almost a direct rebuke of Horatio Alger because Horatio Alger obviously had all those novels in the late 1800s that are just like they're always the story of like poor boys who have nothing who uh, work their way up and get a lucky break and and you know own the factory. Then you know that's that's always the story, and I just think about whether it's. Kane, or uh, even something that just hit its centennial, I believe, Dreiser's American Tragedy uh, and those kind of works that come out of the, you know, the first half of the 20th century that seem to, to rebuke that by kind of going, no, these, these guys who you think have it great, these people who you look at and say, oh, they got it all. They got plucked out of the poorhouse and, and, and everything worked out great, essentially tell you, no, they were miserable and they were all bastards. They've ruined people's lives and they were never happy. And I think that's such an interesting uh, shift in attitude, uh, you know, and then uh, recontextualizing the concept of the American dream from the, you know, f- it, from the end of the 19th century into the 20th. And,
3: and I mean, what I wrote in my that article that we talked about a while ago when we first started talking, the thing that I wrote, I mean, what <laughs> what Wells was talking about here, I mean, we it, it is a. Um, it, it, it's a fictional movie. I don't know the real Hearst very well. You know, like I don't know that much about the real person. And I know that the movie takes a lot of liberties with his, his biography. And, you know, if you saw Mank, you saw that, you know, it was a lot that was the the character in that movie doesn't seem very much like, you know, Citizen Kane at all. But, um, you know, that, that all these decades later, Uh, with our uh, former president, like there's so much about this movie that seems to, I don't know, predict, describe, capture him in these fascinating ways that whether it was intended as this uh, rebuke of these other kinds of stories that you're talking about, it just seems, and I guess this is another thing that I, I I couldn't have possibly recognized about it when I was 12 years old was just how much of it seems to capture um, this type of figure, which we've, I imagine if we sat here and, and made a list, we could think of other people that it, 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 it recalls. But it's just so much like Trump in so many ways that it's just so fascinating that this was made in 1941. You know, I think it's five years before I think he was even born. That it just it's, it's it just seems to capture so much about about him. Um, you know, his ambition and his treatment of women and his uh, his need to be loved and. You know, like when you when you watch it with that context, and you look at some of the quotes that are coming out of the mouths of some of the characters, it's almost eerie in in some scenes. You know, like when I, I know that was when I wrote that piece and I was watching it, um, which was written before the election. But just you know, um, you know, all the the scene where he's running for governor and he he loses but they can't he can't acknowledge and and the newspaper that he owns can't acknowledge that he actually lost and so you know we we scrap the 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 headline of him winning and instead we go with fraud at polls it's like it's unbelievable some of it in a way it's like it's it's, it's kind of it's kind of wild that that so much of it is so predictive in some ways
2: well, and- I mean, even during the I remember during I think it was the second debate with Hillary Clinton. I don't remember which one it was, but I'm I'm almost certain that at one point during one of these debates during 2016, he verbatim guaranteed, uh, you know, the the prosecution and conviction of Hillary Clinton, which is just right. quoting the prosecution right. of boss Jim Geddes. And I even recognized that as I was sitting there watching it going, oh, how do? How is no one going to call this out? He's just right. quoting the movie. The movie. Yeah,
3: I know. If you haven't seen it in a long time, and then you rewatch that scene, you know, and uh, like as a kid, being an idiot, I, you know, that scene is very powerful, and he's speaking so forcefully, and you think, wow, he would be a, a great leader, and and it all fell apart, and then you get a little older and not so stupid, and then you listen to the words he's actually saying, and you're like, oh. <laughs> maybe he wasn't going to be such a, yeah. a great governor yeah absolutely well
2: that's what i mean pauline kale talks about that in her in her famous raising cane piece for the new yorker when she says like i've watched student groups applaud when Kane is making his his populist declarations right you know i mean this is one of the many uh, american films that sort of uh, amongst the many things that Kane discusses you know talks about kind of the danger of of populism uh, you know, and that's kind of why when Trump rose up in power, you know, people were drawing comparisons not just to Kane, but obviously things like A Face in the Crowd, uh, sure. even Batman Returns. Um, because our media and our art has been warning us about this for a while, that very specific, like, this could happen here. All it would take, you know, for the, you know, whatever you want to believe, for the rubes to buy into this is one person to to pretend he speaks the truth. The problem is every one of those things, a face in the crowd, Citizen Kane, Batman Returns, all promised us that the downfall of that figure would be a potential scandal. A tape will come out and it'll bring him down so much so that when the Axis Hollywood tape came out, we all thought, that's it. He's done. It's over. The movies told us this. And of course... Uh, we learned that even Wells couldn't have anticipated quite how uh, craven the voters were. Uh.
1: You know, I mean, it's fu- it's funny, t- you know, it's how much it predicts, but also like, you know, uh, watching that doc, uh, the battle over Citizen Kane and how they get, it's really more about like uh, reflecting well- uh, Hearst and Wells against each other and how it's funny that Hearst got really mad about this movie because this movie's a lot more generous towards him than his real life story is where it's like, Oh, well, you know, he was a sad kid who was abandoned by his parents and he had no one. And he had only all he had was his ambition to get people to love him, where in real life, Hearst was just a big spoiled asshole who just (laughs) just wanted. Well, it's really just like it's uh, he's just a. he had his parents. He bought everything he wanted. He got all these that he started getting his little statue collection when he was like 12 and he was going off overseas and George Hurst was just doing his thing in the Senate. And you just go, he's a lot more kind to this character than you deserve her. So it's weird. You're getting mad about it. And you'd have to think uh, if Wells was alive to make a, a Citizen Kane movie about a Donald Trump figure, he wouldn't be as kind to Donald Trump because he's at least giving Kane like some basic human emotions and uh, like a sad human core and like some sort of relatability instead of just craving wanton destruction because you're a greedy bastard.
2: Because it's it's not a film about Hearst or any one person. It is yeah, about no. the delusion of the American dream.
1: Yeah, right. and it's got the it's got the Wells connection too, which adds uh an even greater tragedy to the movie because it almost feels like he's kinda calling his shot of like, I'm gonna go and take over the world, but I'm gonna be a sad little boy about it. But then he didn't take over the world, so he had a different kind of a direction of being kind of desperate for attention i mean we all kind of know the towards the end with the wine commercial and doing transformers and he was just kind of like hanging on to whatever he could get because citizen kane kind of put the knee kind of kneecapped him for the rest of his life i mean because we see it with magnificent ambersons he wasn't able to finish that and then that kind of really put the finishing touches on it. You know, he how many movies did he start that he didn't finish? One of which we got two years ago on Netflix.
2: And I, I think that the other thing is, you know, we can draw the parallels, but the other thing is that, uh, the, the closest thing we have at the end, uh, of Kane, you know, obviously they've got all the things, all, all of Kane's valuables they're gathering up and dividing up. And then that's why the sled gets tossed in the fire. And I was thinking about that from the angle of, you know, it wasn't a case of when Wells died, uh, People were you know, scavenging his possessions so much as there was a lot toward the end of Wells's life of that next generation of filmmakers all, <sighs> I, 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 to be a little ungenerous, sort of clout chasing on Wells and sort of just like, oh, we recognize you're an artist. And, uh, you know, and just trying to, to talk to him and, and, and pretend like they were suddenly getting some great insight from him. Yeah, you know, if you can't tell from what I'm saying, uh, I tried to listen to Peter Bogdanovich's commentary on Citizen Kane uh, today. And I don't know if you guys know this, he never talks about it ever, but Peter Bogdanovich used to hang out with Orson Welles. Did you guys know that? What? He never brings it up. He just you know, he keeps that real on the down low. But uh but apparently, you know, he was uh, they were apparently totally pals, you guys. Anytime I read Bogdanovich and I read a couple things of his talking about his time with Orson Welles, it sort of feels like when John Lasseter used to say he was friends with Hayao Miyazaki. You know, and it always feels like there's just an awkward handshake there. Where it's like, yeah, sure. Fine.
3: I'm shocked. I had yeah. no idea. No, that this relationship existed. I, <laughs> I I, don't I don't I'm speechless.
2: Yeah. You know, it. that's like I remember reading because I mentioned before the cat's meow and how uh, Bogdanovich, when he was promoting the movie, was like, well, I was talking to Wells and he said he was going to put this story in Citizen Kane. But he thought. It's too scandalous. So now I'm the one to tell it. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I don't think any of that is the case. I think you're just trying to sell this movie. Because let's not forget, Peter Bogdanovich alleges that William Randolph Hearst killed a man. That's, that's what the cat's meow is about.
1: Spoilers. Um, it, it is about that story. Okay. I did hear that story. He, caught, he apparently he caught uh what's her name Marion Davies cheating with Charlie Chaplin and he chased Chaplin on a boat and shot at Chaplin and he accidentally killed somebody else.
2: Now I the movie is somehow dumber than that because the movie is actually that the guy who gets killed played by Carrie Elwes happened to be wearing Chaplin's hat at the time and Hurst mistook him for Chaplin and shot him. You know. Yeah that that tends to happen. That's the, the, the you know
1: the movies more hat based accidents. <laughs>
2: i I think we do have to talk about uh you know the visual elements of this film because that is something that you you can't help but be drawn to as you watch it and you can't help but see the influences uh you know I talked about the uh, earlier I mentioned the you know there is a man the certain man musical sequence, but then when it cuts to that uh that two shot uh of joseph cotton and uh oh now the other actor's name escapes me uh Bernstein uh, as the character Sloan. yes and it's i look at that and that that you know profile and then head on shot and it just feels like oh that's that shows up in bergman's persona that shows up in so many films and you just feel like yeah, it's you can't help but watch this and think of how many things just you know specific iconic films lift moments from this and mine from this movie you know
3: oh yeah so many i was thinking last night uh watching the last scenes in in um, Xanadu when they're wandering through, you know, the giant piles of Kane's collection um, right before the the, re- the, the reveal of, of what Rosebud actually is. And Thompson is giving his speech about, you know, basically admitting that he didn't, like, he spent the whole movie trying to f- figure this thing out and he has no idea. He, no one knows what it is. He hasn't learned anything. And, you know, but then sort of underlining one of the themes of the movie is that, that you know, the idea that no one you know word could explain a man's life or whatever. And I was just looking at that scene going, "Oh, this is where Steven Spielberg probably got the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark." Oh, yeah. There's all these giant piles of um, you know, these crates, these wooden crates. And I, I had never made that uh, connection before, that visual connection that that's clearly what um, was the inspiration for the the last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, yeah. Oh, there's but there's so many of them. I mean, I can't I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head, but You know, there's that that incredible um, shot um, in the opera house where they like the camera starts on Susan's face and then pans up and up and up and up and you know through the through the different um, uh, I don't know what they're called the catwalks up above the the stage and you finally land on you know the guys up above who like give her the pu she stinks kind of thing. It's just an incredible shot, but I feel like that sort of visual storytelling. Of like um, you know panning away from someone to show the reaction is I feel like I that that visual that image I've seen so many times and copied in a lot of places
2: and there's that uh, you know when the when he goes into the when he's in the Thatcher Library and just that one beam of light shining down that very like uh, that that German expressionism look of that library and. I think what I love about this film, too, what's so engrossing about it is the way that he kind of, instead of committing to one visual style, per se, like when you watch, say German Expression, when you watch like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, that entire film looks like, you know, has, has a very specific visual language. What's so engrossing, I think, about Kane is the fact that it kind of picks and chooses when it employs a particular visual technique or a particular uh language you know some moments are very 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 expressionist you know the panning up from the no trespassing sign to that clear model of xanadu uh, and other times attempt to have a bit more austerity and and realism to it i just love the way that he employs all these different cinematic languages in one film
1: it's it's like we were saying mentioning before how like uh we talk about how much this movie influenced things, but uh, we rarely talk about the things that influenced it. Like, you know, he's, he's talked about the look of Xanadu and all that. He he was inspired by Rebecca, and uh, there's almost no way the end of the movie with uh, them just kind of isolated in Xanadu alone wasn't him, like, riffing on old universal horror movies. I mean, it's it's with the, the shadows and the big, you know, gothic mansion, it feels like... Uh, freaking uh, Henry Frankenstein's about to run out and say it's alive, it's alive. At some point, you know, he's 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 the monster in the village. That uh, if anybody knew what he was doing, they'd be coming at him with pitchforks and torches. Uh, I just think uh, I, it 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 goes back to the brilliant structuring of the movie. Of you, you have three different people telling his story, so you give them three different distinct looks, and uh, I think. I mean, this movie just feels so modern. I mean, other than maybe like some rough edits because it was 1941 and they could only edit on film or whatever. So like maybe people today might get a little bit like, oh, that's kind of rough. But it just feels modern, like the way it's shot and the way he, you know, just the way him and Tolan just radically just re- rethought what movies could look like. You, You don't. It almost feels more modern than, like, Mank did.
2: Oh, I, I fully agree. Uh, but I was also... I will cop to this. I, I'm not a Mank fan, uh, which is very surprising. But, uh, but and Matt, you, you reviewed Mank, right?
3: I did. I wasn't a huge uh, huge fan of it either. I And, um, yeah, it, I mean, it's kind of surprising, or it was surprising to me, anyway, how little uh, visually it reminded me of Citizen Kane. Um, you know, I, there's a few Easter eggs here and there and and, and nods to it, of course. <clears throat> but it's a, yeah, that's a much more traditionally shot black and white movie. I mean, it it doesn't have a lot of the uh, kind of aesthetic adventurousness that Citizen Kane does. I, I absolutely would agree that it, uh, Citizen Kane feels a lot more modern
1: uh, yeah, than,
3: than make 100, 100%.
1: There's only like one sequence in Mank that feels almost inspired by Citizen Kane. And it's during the uh, the election when he's he makes the bet on Upton Sinclair winning. And it's got some of that kind of like energy that uh, Citizen Kane has. But other than that, it feels like he wanted to make it feel like a movie from the 40s and 30s. But you should have made it more like the movie the characters were making. But hey, who, who, who am I to say?
2: I also found that, because uh, watch, I watched Mank prior to my most recent rewatch of Kane for this, and
1: it made me appreciate
2: one element of Kane, which is I, I found Mank, this is not going to be a Mank podcast, but I found Mank to be very slow and, and very kind of tedious. Uh, and I think part of that is that Kane structurally has the brilliant conceit of starting with Rosebud. And so you're propelled through the whole movie. You're not just watching Kane's life. You are alongside a reporter, and you and the reporter are both trying to get to the heart of what is Rosebud. And that is the thing that is that is carrying you through this, is getting to this, this end point. Whereas Mank kind of only jumps back and forth between, I'm writing a script, here's why I wrote the script. And there's, an, it, there's no propulsion to it in the way that Kane brilliantly has.
1: It almost feels like the the wraparound story of Mank should have been someone investigating what actually happened, making Citizen Kane after Pauline kale's essay, instead of like, oh, just it's just Mank sitting in a room, and then it's it's much more graceless with its flashback structure than uh, Citizen Kane because of the um uh you know it's it's not just it's it's not just three people randomly, you know, like it's yeah. we, we see his life through the eyes of his business partner, his friend and his lover and you get the entire picture of him not even the entire picture of him that even those three people can't tell the entire story of a man whereas Mank is again, it's not a Mank pe- podcast, although you're Manking out I would definitely listen to that <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's, it's taking some of the ideas without understanding completely why Citizen Kane did those ideas, but, you know, again, and I, Citizen Kane, it, yeah. it's a movie. who movie. But I, I think that,
2: you know, when I looked at Meg, Meg tried to boil down like, well, the entire reason we have Citizen Kane is because uh, Gary Oldman felt sad that Bill Nye the science guy lost his election. Uh, and that doesn't totally square, and it's just trying to fit that all into one thing, whereas the beauty of Kane is that seemingly the uh, you know the narrative is built around like oh Rosebud is going to be the key to unlock everything about Charles Foster Kane and as Matt pointed out the ending essentially has the character we've been following the whole time saying you can never really know one person and then showing Rosebud in the fire I think also gives you as the viewer I think it asks the question if you the viewer kind of. Well, is Rosebud the answer to everything? Is it the thing that ties it all together? Is it Kane's whole MO? Or is it the case that Rosebud was just him having childhood nostalgia and it doesn't actually answer why he did all the things that he did? I, You know, the film doesn't actually make a declaration on that one way or the other.
3: No, it doesn't. But the other way to look at it is that, um, in a sense, I've never thought this before, written this before. This is literally just talking out my butt as we're, as I'm hearing what you're saying. So it's an
2: exclusive is what you're saying. So we'll we'll take it.
3: Yeah. You're going to want to, you're definitely going to want to post this somewhere. (laughs) Is that he's in a sense, if, you know, like what Thompson says is, you know, never figured out what Rosebud is. A word isn't going to explain someone's life. Um, Yada, yada, yada. He goes off. Then the camera kind of glides over to where they're destroying the, the the worthless parts of the collection and it finds the rosebud sled and you see what you get to see that rosebud was the sled, that you get the answer that Thompson never did. And, you know, I wonder if it, in a way the implication is is that this is the power of a movie, is that, you know, in your real life, there are, you know, you won't understand these people, that it's impossible to understand someone, your best friend, your husband, your wife, your you know, your, uh, whatever your, your boss, you will have this perspective on it, but will be incomplete. But the magic of a movie is that it can show you all these perspectives. It can show you things that no one else can see. Um, it can, you know, it's the empathy machine. It can let you walk a mile in someone's shoes. It can let you see things from their perspective, yada, yada, yada. And so in a sense that part of what makes this movie so wonderful and why it is such an exemplary movie is that it it exhibits the power of movies. Like the end could be read as, as, as evidence of why movies are great, why they are this incredible art form and that they can give you a window into someone's soul that a journalist couldn't give you, or even someone's husband could, or wife could, couldn't give you perhaps. Um, And, and that, you know, if, a mo- you know like the, if the greatest movies are the ones that could only be movies, that they couldn't be a painting and they couldn't be a TV show and they couldn't be a novel because of how they're shot or how they're edited or how they're made or whatever. And that that um, that, that in some ways, you know, that that's part of why Citizen Kane is so exemplary as a movie is that it is so uh, singular in that sense. You couldn't make this as a novel. It wouldn't be as good. You couldn't make it as a straight biopic because it would be mank, you know. You couldn't do, you know. a that, um, it's in a sense, it's like a, it's a, uh, a validation of cinema or something like that.
1: It's it's pure cinema. You can't get this experience anywhere else other than through the moving picture. You know, it's uh, yeah. I mean, and it's funny too that like Orson Welles, as he got older, really started like not a pre- he 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 kept. Sh- kind of shit talking the rosebud reveal saying it was uh, cheap pop psychology and uh I don't know what 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 do we feel about that is he right is he i mean i don't I don't agree but i mean is there maybe something to the oversimplification of the rosebud thing that maybe uh movies after it oversimplified what it was doing I think
2: the issue of Rosebud and why maybe I can't speak for Wells uh, who knows why he did what it did. But I, I I think that why he might've disliked it is I think that maybe audiences tended to, and people who brought it up tended to focus on that and sort of treat the movie as though Rosebud is a big twist ending, like some, some sixth sense, you know, M night Shyamalan twist rather than, a vehicle to take us on the the mystery of rosebud is just a vehicle to take us on the journey of the life of Kane, and then a little you know stinger at the end to remind you what it's all about and i think that if if wells just kept hearing about Kane only from the vantage point of which to be honest is kind of mostly the vantage point that maybe i saw it from when i first watched the movie because i was so young you kind of just go like oh, yeah, this guy had everything, but he only wanted his childhood. Like, And you just see it as that's what makes the movie so significant. And then you watch it as you get older and kind of recognize so many other elements of what it's trying to say. I think if Wells just kept hearing about it and hearing about it and hearing about it, I, I imagine it's akin to, uh, I once saw Spike Lee do a Q&A talking about how he was so goddamn sick of particularly white moderators asking him, did Mookie do the right thing? <laughs> and he's like, that's not... Like that's it's not like the movie is just about the trash can going through the window. And was that right or wrong? There's so much more going on. Stop focusing on that. And I think I said the first time I watched it, I just I was nine uh, and I was just able to pick up on the parable of it, you know, that the whole thing was just building up to the sled. And now, you know, and, and on subsequent viewings, other things stick out to you as you get a little older. You know, her yelling, you just want people to love you, sticks with you and you go, well, I don't want to be this person or, or um, you know, the story uh, that that Thompson tells about, I believe it's Thompson, uh, that tells about seeing the girl on the boat. And it's funny, the little things you remember uh, for the rest of your life, those those things stick out to you more to the point where now, to me, you know, I recognize the rosebud element as a device to get us from point A to point B rather than the crux of the film. And I wonder if Wells was responding more to people who treated the rosebud thing as like a grand twist instead of a device. I don't know. Matt, what what do you think?
3: I, I think maybe part of what Wells was annoyed about was just that uh, I think it wasn't just the rosebud element, but that so many people, it was as if this was the only movie he ever made. It was the, you know. And it was the thing he did when he was 25 years old you know it's like if you were 70 and people wouldn't stop yakking about this thing you made 45 years ago when you've had this whole career and all that you might get a little you know it's like when uh, the Rolling Stones are at you know they got to play uh, Gimme Give Give Me Shelter for the millionth time they probably get a little sick of it I would guess <clears throat> I wonder if there's something to that uh, for, for Wells as as, uh, as well
2: I do want to address too when I was talking about uh the moments that stick out uh you know again i remember being i when i watched it again when i was like 12 or 13 which is around you know when you're an early teenager you're starting to kind of uh figure out who you are a bit um and i remember watching it then uh, and i've brought up on the podcast before that uh, i think that sometimes we uh we expect young people to understand things that were not meant for them like in school uh how you have to read The Great Gatsby when you're so young. There's no world where you're going to understand the motives of those characters. I remember I think it was like freshman year of high school. I'm reading The Great Gatsby and I'm like, there. I look back now and go, there's no world where I was going to understand any of those characters motivations back then. You just don't have the life experience for it. And I think Kane is certainly a case where you can see it as a cautionary tale when you are young, uh, you know, especially if you're a teenager. And you can hear, like I said, the line of, you know, you just want people to love you and kind of see that as a cautionary tale. But I think as you get older, you start to notice more things like watching that scene now of when um, when Cain is writing the Declaration of Principles and Joseph Cotton says, well, I'm going to hang on to this. Uh, You know, I want to have and you kind of hear that youthful exuberance in Cain's voice. I mean, when he's asking, oh, go out and let's let's accuse this guy of murdering his wife. He laughs with this exuberance. And now watching it again, you know, when you know they're fated to lose that, that he's going to become more money driven and cynical, you know, you can't help but look back on your own kind of youthful idealism and see where that all went, uh, where where, where did that all go? And, uh, you know, how much optimism and, and vision and, and how you felt like you were going to, you know, conquer the world. You know, I mean, for Tom and I, we were in college. I had a, you know, I ran the the campus magazine there and we were sitting in my office talking about, all the things we were going to do when we got out of school and now, you know, we're sitting here recording a podcast in the middle of the pandemic and an economic crisis. We couldn't have anticipated, you know, everything's nothing went the way we had planned. Nothing went uh, the way of our optimistic vision. And now you watch that scene and kind of think, right, that you can only be that way when you're 25. You can only be where Kane and, and Cotton are at in that scene when you're at that age and, 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 the kind of things that crumble with that. So I kind of wanted to talk about what scenes when you watched this film most recently, what scenes struck a chord with each of you guys, uh, on this viewing?
1: Uh,
3: do you want me to go first?
2: Whoever wants to go. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, if you want to go first or Tom, if you want to either way,
1: uh, I'll, I'll just quickly say, um, yes, I'll just say it's, um, uh, it was the scene where he destroys the, uh, the room after she leaves and, um, just his, Complete and utter, like how he regresses to a child and is desperate and begging her to stay. I don't know that that really just connected to me. Um, I I just feel like I don't know, not 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 exactly the same way, but I've you know I've I've been there where I lost a significant, a significant other was leaving, and you just feel like all all of the shit in your life, all the all the armor you put on just drops, and you just. Regress and you just—I don't know—I—I I, I just connect to that, that, and uh, you know, as a obsessive Blu-ray collector, uh, all, just then throwing all this shit away and saying, "Eh, none of this matters. He's dead." <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, I think I think for me the 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 section of the film that I that I, I I think was maybe I just appreciated more recently was a lot of the stuff that's narrated or at least was from the perspective of Joseph Cotton and the way he talks about Kane all he has all these incredible quotes which I guess are you know I don't know if it's Mankiewicz or Wells or both who wrote these speeches that he gives but all the ways he describes him uh, he had a generous mind I don't suppose anybody ever had so many opinions but he never believed in anything except Charlie Kane he never had a conviction except Charlie Kane in his life I suppose he died without one just an incredible speech and he has a few others like that in that um in the wraparound parts with the older Jedediah like the older version of the character and I guess maybe part of it is because he's talking and he's you know rambling a little at times and he's asking Mr. Thompson to give him a cigar and you know and all this stuff that it's almost like distracting you from him really laying this character out. And how, you know, all the stuff about him wanting to be loved, and that's why he did everything, was he was so desperate for love, but he had none to give, and he only wanted love on his own terms. I mean, I don't know that I relate to that. I just find that, I don't know, I just, again, like the parallels to so many public figures, it's such an interesting sort of analysis of this particular figure, this some this person who, you know, he's he aligns himself with populism and being a populist, and you know Kane himself has a speech earlier where he's talking I think to Thatcher or maybe it's to some of the staff about you know like uh I need to protect people because you know the, uh, no one else is going to look out for them I have money and property and if I don't look out for these people uh you know somebody else will which is like th- these people that he's talking about look you know so dismissively too it's like They could look out for themselves. They could fight for themselves. They could talk for themselves. Like the idea that this this guy who is in possession of the sixth biggest fortune in the world is going to speak for the working man is so you know so delusional and self centered, and so so true to life lately um, that it, it just adds this other fascinating layer to the character that in these recent viewings I really find so rich and. And sadly accurate um, that those are the scenes that I even more than sort of the technically the bravura camera work and the incredible, you know, cinematography like that's the stuff that's been resonating with me lately about it is sort of those core emotional truths about uh, this type of person who, you know, demands Everyone love him and offers no love back in in return and craves power but only wants it selfishly and uh it's it's a i don't know it's a it, that's that's like a whole other side of the movie that when I was younger i didn't really think about very much and now I find myself very much drawn to
2: i I'm so glad you brought up the you know the older Joseph cotton and the fact that you mentioned he's asking for a cigar he's fairly jovial I think that you know, a lot of people, if they were writing that character, uh, you know, a lot of people would write him very angry and bitter because, of course, that's his history with Kane. He should be upset. He should be mad. And uh, this time watching it, I kept thinking about, you know, and even the reporter at points seems confused. If if Cotton has, you know, has such a low opinion of Kane, why is he sort of jovial about it? Why is he sort of still like, oh, that was Charlie? And I kept thinking about, a scene that has stuck with me from, uh, you know, from Alan Moore's Watchmen comic, which is uh, when when Sally Jupiter confronts her mother about, um, you know, the the horrific uh, mistreatment, I, I guess, you know, I don't want to get too graphic, but you know, about, about uh, her mother's history with the comedian and the way the comedian you know, abused her. And she kind of goes, you know, well, why aren't you mad? How could you still be around and She goes, well, you know, you get older. And, you, and she's like, oh, I think she says, how can you still miss him? And she goes, you know, you get older and you kind of just, you know, you don't feel as strongly about those things. You kind of just, you know, and and sh- it's a, pa- a page and a section that kind of addresses the way that as you get older, you sort of recontextualize things. And I think that what's so interesting about the way that Cotton talks about Kane, too, is he just kind of recognizes he doesn't hate him anymore. He can't have any strong feelings to him because he kind of just recognizes this, the, the sort of almost patheticness of this great man in the end, you know, and he kind of just, he's, he's just as content to talk about the attractive nur- nurses in the, in the nursing home or something like that. You know, it, it's, it's so interesting that, uh, that a theme in this film that doesn't get talked about as much is just memory and the way that, how we feel about a particular moment or what matters so much to us at a particular point in time will be rendered irrelevant uh not just to other people but even to ourselves years and decades later and you almost look back and go yeah why the hell did i do that or why did i get so caught up in this and kane in one way kane's biggest downfall in this film is how swept up in a moment he gets whether it's the fact that he builds an opera house for his his uh, his wife who doesn't even want to sing or, you know, when he uh, when he gets so foolhardy and hyped up, that he's like, actually, I'm going to finish writing the review, the takedown. I'm going to do it. This is a great idea, you know, or even that truly haunting moment when he's yelling down the stairs at Gettys, you know, you're going to regret. He just lets himself be so guided by his own self-righteousness and his own confidence that he knows exactly what to do, and that this is the most consequential thing in the world, that is what often leads to his little downfalls throughout the film, which I think is such an interesting element of this. So, uh, we always wrap up talking about how these films performed at the Oscars, and uh, this is perhaps uh, the most infamous Oscars uh, in history, because, quite frankly, and we were going to be talking about this movie next season, because it was inducted in the registry in 1990, But the fact of the matter is, most people know How Green Was My Valley solely because of the trivia fact that it beat the movie that's considered the greatest of all time. So let's touch on this. Citizen Kane was nominated for Best Picture alongside Blossoms in the Dust, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Hold Back the Dawn, The Little Foxes, The Maltese Falcon, One Foot in Heaven, Sergeant York, Suspicion, and the winner, How Green Was My Valley. It lost Best Picture to How Green Was My Valley. Lost Best Director to John Ford for How Green Was My Valley. Orson Welles was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Gary Cooper in Sergeant York. It was nominated for Best Scoring of a Dramatic Picture, but lost to All That Money Can Buy. Uh, Nominated for Best Sound Recording, lost to That Hamilton Woman. Up for Best Art Direction, lost to How Green Was My Valley. Up for Cinematography, lost to How Green Was My Valley. And up for Best Editing, which it lost to Sergeant York. A couple things I find interesting there. Well, one, the only Oscar it did win was Best Original Screenplay, which Wells shared with Mankiewicz, but uh, Mankiewicz maintained upon his acceptance that uh, Wells really didn't have much to do with the script, which you also see at the end of the film we talked about, Mank. Interesting to note, uh, it loses Best Score to All That Money Can Buy. Both of those scores are written by Bernard Herrmann. So Herrmann still ended up getting an Oscar that year for the lesser score of the two, But he did still end up getting recognized. And I thought it was interesting, uh, early in the podcast, Matt, you talked about biopics and how common biopics were. I do find it interesting that Wells, uh, with this very nuanced performance, loses to Gary Cooper for a literal biopic in which, I hate to sound terrible, Gary Cooper is not particularly good in Sergeant York. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a hot take. Um, Now,
3: Matt, have you seen How Green Was My Valley? I actually haven't it's on, you know, I recently started kind of like picking off the best picture winners that I've never seen. And there's a fair number that I haven't. And so while I've been stuck at home, I thought that'd be a, something to do between, you know, things I'm watching for work. And, and so I made a list of all of them and I, I have never seen it. And, you know, I, I will say one thing I do remember from film school um, is some of my uh, friends in film school saying that it was a great movie. And I think even one or two of them saying, oh, it's a better movie than Citizen Kane in that kind of contrarian sort of way. But I know that it is, it, you're absolutely right. It is sort of famous for being the movie that beats Citizen Kane for the Oscar. But I have, again, I haven't seen it, but by all accounts, it is It is a great movie in its own right. I mean, I, John Ford is a fantastic director, so it doesn't shock me if it if it is. But, uh, yeah, I haven't seen it. I'm hoping to see it th- at some point this year while I'm working my way through these Best Picture winners I've never seen.
2: Yeah, that was how I started my quarantine, as I watched all the, the Best Picture winners I hadn't seen. And uh got got to tell you, if you haven't seen Out of Africa, just don't.
3: That just... one I've already... Yeah, that was actually one of the first ones I, I did watch. And, uh, yeah, it's not very...
2: No, it's one of those ones that any time I hear somebody say, Oh, this is probably the worst movie to win Best Picture, I'm like, no, it isn't. It's not. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's there it's pretty yeah it's pretty
2: far down there. Truly confounding.
1: Just this conversation kind of reminded me uh now that Vertigo is the number 1 movie on the Sight and Sound poll, uh how how do we feel about that? What it, if that's uh not necessarily the right choice or what it says about uh the people who are voting in these uh polls now the state of the film criticism world or whatever, just in general like uh do we think uh Citizen Kane should rally back next time, or is Vertigo a good number one for now?
2: It's funny you mention that, Tom. We talked about this a little bit on our Vertigo episode, which, by sheer coincidence, is the episode that just dropped today as we record this. So on our feed, Vertigo is the newest episode. I kind of said in that episode, and I think this it's kind of a case of I do kind of wonder if that was a conscious thing on the part of the people voting to not. Give it to Kane again, because it topped the sight and sound poll for so many decades. I, I do wonder if it was a conscious choice to kind of go, eh,
1: you know, it did take a while for Kane to kind of get that uh, moniker of greatest. Yes. Movie. I mean, it was like it didn't really start until like the 50s and it wasn't e- it was a while before it even took the sight and sound poll. Yeah.
3: Well, the next the next poll is coming up, I think next year, right? So who it, will it, the the most recent one? I think they do it on the every you know year that ends with two.
2: Yes. Uh, yeah.
3: So the last one was twenty twelve. So we're we're coming up next year on the next one. So who knows? Maybe Citizen Kane will be back on on top, or maybe something else entirely will be number one. Uh, who knows? Big fever brought it back to number one,
1: baby.
2: Uh, listen, it's it's most it's a lot of Europeans voting too. So who knows? It could just be Joker. They love that movie. Um, they they adore it. Imagine the riots. Uh, but no, I, I I think that with Kane to, there is this effort. Look, it's considered the greatest film of all time. It is code word for the greatest film of all time. When people are making jokes about it, they off Citizen Kane is the name that gets used, right? Uh, when people make jokes about oh, the next Citizen Kane, oh, it wasn't Citizen Kane. It's just it's the even for people who haven't seen it, who know nothing about it, they just know it is the the number one movie. You know, with a bullet, it's considered the greatest film of all time. And as a result, I think that kind of affects people's view of it, too. Uh, I think that people, you know, judge it on a different level because it's supposed to be the greatest film of all time. Uh, I remember in high school, I had a teacher. We had a film class in high school who I I swear to God introduced the movie by saying to a class of high school students who were seeing it mostly for the first time. The statement she gave was a lot of people consider this the greatest film of all time. I don't get it. And then started playing the movie. <laughs>
1: it's like, how do you start there? How is that? Well, you know, I think a uh, thing that will uh, work in Citizen Kane's favor over Vertigo is uh, maybe it's just me. Let me know. Uh, I think Citizen Kane's is a, a much easier watch than Vertigo. Mm. I like Vertigo. I love Vertigo. I just think, you know, I, it, it, there's a reason why Citizen Kane's lasted this long. And uh, it's because, like I said, all the way at the beginning. This movie's fun. It's funny. Like, before it gets really sad, it's like kind of a rowdy, like, movie about a young guy. And, he, he, like, there's jokes, and it's it's just, yeah. I don't know. And, and, like, it just breezes by. The two hours just goes where, you know, I think that'll help it. And, again, fever.
2: I also think, and and, and feel free to correct me, anyone, and, and uh, I hope no one's going to be mad if I, if I speak a little ill of Rolling Stone slightly. Look. Uh, Citizen Kane is 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 the considered the greatest movie of all time it's it's code word for the greatest movie of all time uh it's the go-to for that much the same way that on in music the Beatles are just the greatest band of all time they are considered the band greatest band of all time it's common knowledge uh Sgt. Pepper is considered the greatest album of all time again with a bullet Sgt. Pepper is to albums what Citizen Kane is to movies and when Rolling Stone put out back in 2002 uh, I believe they put out a, a 500 greatest albums list uh Sergeant Pepper was number one. They redid the list in 2012. Sergeant Pepper was number one. Virtually any list of greatest albums put Sergeant Pepper at number one. This past year, they did uh, a greatest albums list, and not only did they rank Sergeant Pepper, I think at like 15 or 16, um, but obviously they put Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On" at number one. And I couldn't help but feel, and I love "What's Going On." It's a great album, and it was in their top ten both other times. But I did kind of read that list with like, oh, you this felt like a very deliberate, oh, see, we didn't put that at number one, rather than, you know, something in terms of trying to chart the greatest album. It it felt like a very, I mean, that whole list felt very motivated by not wanting Twitter kids to tell you, okay, Boomer. But it did feel like that was a deliberate choice in terms of not just wanting to recognize another album, but deliberately saying, look, we're not picking the one everybody picks. We have a different take. The same way that, you know when people try and sound like they've got a hot take, it's always well. Actually, people think the Beatles are the greatest band, but I actually think blank obscure group is better than them. You know, I, I feel like it's a it's a it's a slaughtering of the sacred calf in a way, and that's kind of why I loved, and that's where this all started. That that piece you did, Matt, about why Citizen Kane wasn't overrated, was so refreshing because that movie, being so held up, is the ultimate target for the hot takes and the takedowns, you know, which is something you recognized at the start of the piece, that when when Mank was coming out, it was going to launch a wave of, well, actually, uh, Citizen Kane isn't that great. And that's what I loved so much about the piece you did, was kind of you know stepping in to go, "Uh, let's not get crazy here, you know?
3: Right, exactly. Yeah. Yep, yep. That's that's the way of the world these days, I guess.
2: (laughs) And that's kind of what this whole show has been about to kind of uh, kind of counter and, and uh, you know, uh, kind of address, well, here's why these films matter. And I, I think that uh, we did, uh, I hope, and our listeners can tell us, that not just this episode, but this whole past season of 25 movies that we've talked about, I hope that we have uh, helped some people see why these films matter. And I hope that if you've seen it before, you see them with a new light now. And I hope that if you haven't seen some of these films, you seek them out. Except of course, King Vidor's *The Crowd*, which Warner Brothers. will not allow you to see for some reason. But everything else, I hope you seek it out. I have had a lot of fun doing this season of the show. Uh, I hope people have had fun listening to it, and and I'm so glad, uh, Matt, that you were uh, here to be our, our uh, final guest of the season on this uh, this journey we've taken, and on such a uh, to to end the season on such a significant film and such a significant note. I, I'm so glad you were here. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, man. My pleasure.
0: So this is it, boys. The last wrap up of season one. What films would you guys include in the registry? As a reminder to our listeners, it must be an American film that's at least 10 years old.
2: You're right. This is our uh, our wrap. Though I will remind folks and I'll remind them again at the end. uh, Stick around because next week you're going to get our uh, finale episode where we're going to look back on the films we talked about, look ahead at the films uh, we're doing next season, we're going to give out some uh you know what do you want to call them some kind of uh, retroactive awards to some of these films so we're going to have a lot of fun stuff next week uh and of course we'll go through all the films that we picked the registry and and send them off uh i was thinking about this uh actually tom did you want to go first did you want me to go first i didn't ask uh
1: yeah i'll go first um i'm going to go first because uh i don't i mean i don't have the most original answer here there's nothing really too deep about it i mean i'm just i'm not even going to do a big pre- preamble i mean i'm going to I'm putting up uh, There Will Be Blood. Uh, this is a movie when it came out. I mean, uh, I, before I saw it, uh, I was reading reviews. People, oh, it's this generation, Citizen Kane. And then, like, I saw it. And even as a 17 year old who'd just seen, like, Citizen Kane, I was like, yeah, no, this is actually pretty well accurate. And you watch There Will Be Blood these days as you get older and you see it uh, even clearer and the way it reads the world and how, um, you know, just just the filmmaking and the themes and the character and just the way it all rolls up and all of that, uh, there will be blood. It's, it's, uh, it's stupid. It's not in already. <laughs> just going to go out there. It's, it's, it's big dumb stuff that it's not in there already. Uh, just put it in. Uh, yeah, there will be blood. Not n- don't have to make it hard. Just there will be blood.
2: I'm going a little out there since this is our final episode, but I'm, I'm not creating a precedent or anything. The idea of selecting something like this is not unprecedented. The registry isn't just preserving full-length narratives, as we know they do shorts. Uh, Even test patterns are in the registry now. Film fragments. Uh, Lime Kiln Field Day is in the registry, and that's footage that was shot but never edited together. Uh, There was no script. They had to piece together the dialogue from lip-reading. Uh, Newark athlete, which is the oldest film in the registry, and I believe the shortest, or one of the shortest, uh, is only a film fragment. So it's not unprecedented for the registry to induct uh, shorts, fragments, things that are not necessarily a finished, complete film. Um, so I think we know where this is going. If anybody <laughs> hasn't seen it, but there's no avoiding it. Um, you know, and on that same token. The registry has inducted things because of their national historical significance, uh, even if it's not some remarkable narrative. I mean, footage of William McKinley wandering a garden or at his inauguration, uh, even things like Newt Rockne, All-American, you know, if there's or, or the Kennedy primary documentary we're doing next season, you know, because it's just, oh, that's the president. We have this footage. It's important. When we talk about Citizen Kane from now on, it's going to be unavoidable. Uh, to talk about how accurate it was in depicting a president who would not even be born when the film was released. For folks who don't know, the master documentarian Errol Morris was working on a project in 2002 called The Movie Movie. And the idea was he was going to sit down with famous figures and talk to them about their favorite movies. And I think there was a plan to insert them inside their favorite movies. I believe uh, he, he was going to interview Mikhail Gorbachev about Solaris and Dr. Strangelove. But the one interview he did do was with, at the time, uh, reality show star and, and sort of businessman and future president of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, who named Citizen Kane as his favorite movie. And I believe that in this three minute clip of Morris talking to Trump and having him explain Citizen Kane in his point of view, tells us more about one of the most dastardly significant figures uh, of the 21st century. The way that he describes uh, the film, and seemingly with no sense of introspection, talks about the man accruing so much material possession and being ultimately lonely. And, And occasionally you think he's getting close to broaching something profound and close to broaching something moral, and then he'll turn around and go, you know, the marriage, it wasn't good for him, it wasn't good for her either, but, you know, she got perks or you know and after all that when you're trying to figure out does he get citizen kane does he actually understand it errol morris asks him what advice would you give charles foster kane and he says get yourself a different woman i think that he, perhaps no no historical figure has ever distilled everything about them in a piece of film criticism in the way that uh, or art criticism at all in the way that uh, errol morris got uh, donald trump in 3 minutes to show his inability to grasp the film that ultimately predicted his uh, destructive rise to power. So I think for posterity's sake, and it's, it's chillingly prescient nature, Errol Morris's interview with Donald Trump about Citizen Kane should be in the National Film Registry. And that's about the only footage for him that should be.
0: Thank you for listening. And thanks to Matt Singer for joining us. You can find his work on Screen Crush and pick up Spider-Man from Amazing to Spectacular wherever books are sold. You can follow him on social media at Matt Singer. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at N-K-O-A-S and Tom at Raging Bowl 1990. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Next week, we'll be back with our finale. We'll look back at the films we've watched, look ahead at the next season, and finally, make our submissions to the National Film Registry. We'll see you there.